Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. On March 16, 1802, Congress approved legislation establishing the United States Military Academy at West Point. Today, it is one of the oldest military service academies in the world. Most of the officers in Major Dade's ill-fated command had West Point pedigrees. Many more served throughout the long Second Seminole War. Recently, a military historian has cast his lens on the West Point class of 1829. That class featured 11 cadets who later saw service in what was then termed the Florida War. One, in fact, served under Major Dade in 1835, but found himself dispatched to deliver a message and therefore unable to accompany Dade on that disastrous march in late December. Another saw action at the First Battle of Loxahatchee in January 1838, ironically though, as a civilian contractor rather than as a military officer. He later put back on his military uniform, advancing to general officer in both the Union and, in 1861, the Confederate States of America. One graduate, to commemorate a close friendship, changed his surname to that of a fallen comrade from the previous year's class of 1828, who had died in the war. One other became a trusted Indian agent in the years leading up to the Third Seminole War. With us to discuss the West Point class of 1829 and those among it who served in the Florida Wars and one famous graduate, Robert E. Lee, who did not, is Professor P.J. Springer. P.J. is the chair for the Department of Research at the Air Command and Staff College at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. A military historian, he has taught at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York, and at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Along with Christopher Mortensen, is the editor of the three-volume Daily Life of U.S. Soldiers from the American Revolution to the Iraq War. He is also the author of several books, including America's Captives, Treatment of POWs from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror, Transforming Civil War Prisons, Lincoln, Lieber, and the Laws of War, Military Robots and Drones, a Reference Handbook, and Cyber Warfare, a Reference Handbook. P.J. Springer, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Well, thanks, Patrick. It's exciting to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. P.J., we first made contact because of a podcast you did for the Army War College's War Room, A Better Peace. The focus there was the West Point class of 1829. What was special about that class? Well, for me, that class is a fascinating group because it's really at the the cusp of professionalization for the U.S. Army. What you have is a transition from heavy reliance upon wartime volunteers and militia units and the creation of an actual military profession within the United States. And the members of that class are a great representative group that you can use to, to really look at how the Army is transforming and how it's having a major effect on the development and expansion of the United States at the same time. What got you interested in this period of U.S. military history? I was actually teaching at West Point at the time that, that I really started on this project. And for one reason or another, uh, much like you see today, 
the question of uh, Confederate memorials had come up. This would have been in about 2008, give or take. And I had one particular cadet who was very vehement that West Point in particular should not be in any way, shape, or form revering anyone that took up arms against the United States. West Point has, for example, a Robert E. Lee barracks still. Now, Lee had served as the superintendent of West Point, And so, to a certain extent, West Point seems to be kind of revering its own history rather than suggesting that we should lionize someone who fought on behalf of the Confederacy. But my cadet didn't really accept that answer as being acceptable, and I suspect it was partly because he lived in Lee Barracks and didn't really like it. But he was constantly harping on the fact that Robert E. Lee gets lionized in a lot of ways, um, in particular for graduating second in his class and for not having any demerits in his time at West Point. And the cadet in question started asking me about who had graduated first in the class. Uh, And the reality is I had no idea. At the time, I had no clue. And so I got curious, and I started looking into the records a little bit and discovered that the individual in question was a, a man named Charles Mason. When I compared Mason's record at the academy with Lee's, what I found was that Mason really had outdone Lee in almost every aspect of being a cadet. And yet Lee went on to a long-standing military career and obviously eventually rose to command the Army of Northern Virginia in the Civil War, whereas Mason spent two years on the West Point faculty after his graduation, then resigned his commission and went on to other things. And so I started looking at other members of the class, and I realized that I recognized a lot of the names and that I had previous experience with some of the individuals in the class. Uh, My first book dealt with American prisoner of war policy, for example, and one of the members of the class was William Hoffman, who served as the commissary general of prisons on behalf of the Union throughout the Civil War. So I had encountered a lot of material associated with Hoffman. Uh, Joseph E. Johnston, also a very famous Confederate general, was a member of the class as well. And, And as I started to realize that so many of these individuals had made major contributions within the United States society over the course of the mid-1800s, it just really kind of became fascinating to see all of the different ways that this very small group of men developed and lived their lives. I spoke to James Robbins, who authored the book Last in Their Class, The Goats of West Point, and I perhaps a little facetiously brought up that since they seemed so unprepared for this type of fighting, would it have been better if they had a bunch of lieutenants there without a West Point education? And he gave me pushback, and I was a little surprised, but he said, look, you got to organize people. You've got to lead. You've got to have discipline. And these West Point lieutenants had that, whereas militia officers didn't. And this was a key thing at the tactical level, certainly, to have West Point training for these folks. How do you react to that? You know, the reality is I think these guys were far more capable, uh, particularly at their relatively young ages, than their peers in any form of militia or irregular forces. I would agree with Robbins that the reality is nothing at West Point prepared anybody for the type of fighting in the Florida Wars. But the same was true in any other institution. The Florida War was pretty much unprecedented in a lot of ways. And the West Point education, uh, contrary to what a lot of people think, didn't spend very much time on military activities. Uh, The cadets themselves learned drill, and that meant that they knew how to organize a company of troops and how to train them. But they didn't spend a lot of time on tactics, operations, logistics, or strategy. 
that was something that they were actually expected to learn essentially on the job as lieutenants and captains serving at the side of more advanced, more experienced leaders. Those that chose to stay in, they developed a lot of their capabilities through experience, through the ability to learn quickly uh, and to adapt to local conditions, regardless of what type of a fight they faced. You mentioned two graduates of the West Point class of 1829, Robert E. Lee and Joseph Johnston. So what was their service in the Florida War? Robert E. Lee was really nowhere near the Florida War. Um, Joseph E. Johnston, on the other hand, was sent to Florida and resigned his commission. So he actually gets his first taste of the Second Seminole War as a civilian serving as a topographical engineer. But he's out with a war party, essentially. He's at Jupiter Inlet when a fight breaks out and all of the officers that are with the troops are wounded. And Johnson kind of effectively assumes command, despite not technically being in the Army any longer. Uh, the accounts vary a little bit on exactly how much danger Johnston was facing, but they all agree that he was definitely in the thick of the fighting. You'll see some biographies that will claim that Johnston's clothing was struck at least 30 times by musket balls fired by Seminole opponents. You have others that put the estimates a little bit lower, but all of the eyewitnesses agree that Johnston took multiple wounds in his first engagement in Florida, and that he essentially saved the command by managing to hold off the attacking Seminoles long enough for the rest of the party to evacuate. For his efforts, he almost got left behind. He essentially managed to signal and jump onto the last flatboat as it was pulling away from the, the edge of the, the water that they were on. And then Johnston winds up coming back into service. I don't know if it was his taste of conflict that suddenly made him want to be part uh, of service again, or whether he thought he wasn't getting the types of opportunities as a civilian that he had hoped for. Over the course of most of his Army career, Johnston wavers on whether he wants to get out of service and potentially pursue a civilian occupation. Uh, but he does wind up staying in, and he's one of the first members of the class to actually reach general officer rank when he becomes the Army's quartermaster general at the, the rank of brigadier general. This was at the first Battle of Loxahatchee. That's correct. Which was joint operation because there were sailors involved. There were about 80 individuals there, and only 25 of them were Army. The rest of them were, were sailors. And uh, like Johnston, there were a few civilians involved that were mainly there for topographical purposes. From what we can tell, they essentially just kind of blundered into a war party of Seminoles. By all accounts, Johnston was wearing a bright red sash around his waist that seemed to draw an awful lot of fire from the Seminoles. It was a pretty convenient and obvious target. By all accounts, Johnston's wounds to his forehead uh, left visible scars that he carried for the rest of his life. Robert E. Lee didn't go to the Florida Wars when most of the Army found duty down in the Florida Wars. What you find is the branch of service that someone was in largely determined whether or not they were going to the Florida Wars. Uh, within the, the class of 1829, there are 42 graduates. The vast majority of those at the top of the, the graduating class, like Robert E. Lee, they wind up branching anything other than infantry. And so in Lee's particular case, he and Charles Mason are the two individuals that are selected by the Corps of Engineers, uh, which was considered kind of the, the premier assignment. But the engineers don't have a lot of activity down in the Florida Wars. Uh, the engineers tend to be more concerned with coastal fortifications. Florida, while it did have a series of fortifications along the coast, those fortifications were more designed for potential interior control and less 
designed for any effort to ward off uh, some kind of an enemy invasion. Yeah, the climate of Florida was so just absolutely terrible at that time period that nobody thought there was any real risk of a foreign power trying to launch an invasion of the United States starting in Florida, which meant you didn't get a lot of investment in heavy coastal defenses there, the same way that you did at the, the key harbors that were really propping up the American economy and in particular American trade. So Robert E. Lee, it's not like he's avoiding Florida, he's just not assigned there. Uh, he's just not sent there by the Army War Department headquarters because that's not where his services are going to be most useful. But what surprised me more than anything else was how many of the individuals that did serve in Florida, there are 11 out of the, the 42 members of the class that actually served during uh, the Second Seminole War. Of those 11, almost all of them are actually branched artillery. Uh, the infantry, for the most part, is getting sent to frontier posts elsewhere, and the artillery is getting essentially tagged to send as many auxiliary officers down as possible to try to help oversee the, the Florida war. So you've got this really small army that is spread all across the, the western and northern frontiers of the United States. The infantry troops are taking up most of those posts. It's the artillery on the east coast that winds up supplying an awful lot of the officers for the Florida War because they're considered essentially available. If you pull them back from the western or northern frontiers, the perception is that's going to invite attack from native groups or even potentially uh, renewed conflict with the British. Uh, there's quite a bit of tension with the British going on at the same time period. Some West Point graduates get so little written about them, despite perhaps sterling military careers. <laughs> To a certain extent, obviously, people choose the subjects that they're going to write about based on their own personal interests, uh, but sometimes it's also based on availability of resources. There are some members of this West Point class that, for all intents and purposes, there's just nothing out there on them at all. Now, in a few cases, that's because they died very shortly after graduation. West Point class of 1829 gets kind of sprinkled throughout all of the different service areas and all of the different regiments in existence. Uh, but some regiments are more dangerous than others. For example, in 1832, a massive cholera outbreak hits the United States. That cholera outbreak kills two members of the class. Since that happened only three years after graduation, not surprisingly, there's just not that much about those individuals. The, the things that I've been able to unearth about them tend to be kind of the basic biographical details, their performance at West Point, their application materials associated with getting the appointment to West Point, but there's not that much data collected by the War Department for the behavior of second lieutenants out on the frontier. Occasional letter to the Adjutant General mentioning a couple of those individuals, but an awful lot of them essentially just kind of disappear. The same is going to be true for the individuals that resigned their commissions very quickly and then went on to, for lack of a better term, undistinguished personal lives. So if we take Charles Mason as an example, he's the top graduate of the class. He spends two years in the Department of Mathematics at West Point. He then, uh, at the same time, reads law at uh, a local law office near West Point and then decides to pursue a career as a lawyer. And that could have been the end of it for Mason if he had just happily gone off to his quiet law career. Uh, but Mason has pretty big dreams, and he winds up actually becoming first a territorial justice and then a member of the Territorial Supreme Court of Wisconsin and then of Iowa. He essentially personally writes the Iowa Code, uh, most of which is 
still in force today. And he winds up becoming the U.S. Commissioner of Patents in Washington, D.C. for a while. He runs for the governor of the state of Iowa during the Civil War, uh, though it is an unsuccessful campaign. Uh, but he's very well revered in Google circles, and uh, he has a lot of different activities. He founds a railroad. Um, you know, he's a busy guy. But some of these individuals just quietly disappear into civilian life. I've got a, a different one that, that basically he moves back to Connecticut, becomes a farmer, and that's what he does for the rest of his life. Lives a long, happy life, as far as I can tell, but doesn't leave a whole lot of records behind. When you signed up to go to West Point, these guys, they're actually writing and soliciting appointments directly from the Secretary of War, who at the time was John C. Calhoun. Uh, and so it's fascinating to see these 15-year-old boys writing letters to the Secretary of War asking for the possibility of an appointment to West Point. But when they go, they actually sign a, a document with their parents' permission if they're underage, essentially pledging five years of service. And that's four years at West Point, and then one more year, in theory, in uniform, after which they have no more obligation to the government. If you go to West Point today, uh, the normal service expectation, or at least it was a few years ago when I was teaching there, is that you have four years of education and that you will then serve a minimum of five years in uniform. Uh, right now, the academy statistics are showing that about 50% of any given graduating class will not be in uniform 10 years after they graduate. About one-third of this West Point class of 1829 saw service in the Florida Wars. Eleven out of 42 saw service in the, the Second Seminole War specifically. Tell our listeners about some of these folks. Probably the one that's most interesting and most associated with uh, the Florida Wars, I would say, is John C. Casey. Casey was born in England. He went to West Point and managed to graduate 11th in the class, which was a, a very high standing. He winds up branching into the 2nd Artillery Regiment, and he sees a relatively normal career by this class's standard. By relatively normal, what I mean is Casey uh, advances at about the normal rate. He spends his first six years of active duty as a 2nd Lieutenant before finally making 1st Lieutenant in 1835. It's going to be another seven years before he becomes a captain, and captain is the rank that he holds when he dies in 1856. So 27 years of service, and the man winds up a captain. But Casey seems to be somewhat enamored with service in Florida, and Casey also contracts tuberculosis. Casey is 100% convinced that Florida is the best climate for his own personal comfort and survival with tuberculosis. We know now that he probably would have been better off had he managed to serve in the Southwest in the dry desert air, but Casey, for reasons of personal health, will petition repeatedly to make sure that he stays in service in Florida. Casey's service in Florida is not particularly distinguished as an active duty officer engaged in conflict, but his service as essentially a staff officer, on the other hand, is inherently fascinating because Casey winds up becoming the War Department's agent for the Seminoles. In that role, he is one of, if not the most respected military officers within the Seminole Nation. They actually know they can trust Casey. He has a very strict policy of never deceiving the Seminoles, and he's very dedicated to being essentially a, a fair player, if you will. And so Casey becomes actually fairly close with Billy Bolex. Uh, Bolex trusts Casey, knows that Casey will not deceive him, knows that Casey has the, the best interests of the Seminoles at heart while still serving as the War Department agent for the Seminoles. 
For a while, the, the Department of the Interior holds responsibility for relations between the government and the Seminoles, and it's Casey that's the foremost critic of the Bureau of the Interior and of its special Indian agents. He's essentially accusing them of corruption, of deception, of all kinds of, of horrible things, such that he winds up essentially provoking his own court-martial. He's exonerated of any potential uh, doings, and eventually the War Department reassumes control over the relationship between the Seminoles and the Army and the government as a whole. It's Casey that's doing his best to be an honest broker that's trying to convince Billy Bowlegs and his followers and his peers that it might be in their own best interest to go west, uh, to move to Seminole territory that has been set aside in modern-day Oklahoma. Now, Casey winds up actually owning the artifacts of Osceola after Osceola's death, and it's kind of a convoluted trail of exactly how they came to Casey, and the trail then goes cold for a lot of those artifacts. We're not sure what wound up happening to them, in the same way that we're not 100% certain where John Casey is buried. There's actually some controversy about it. We think we know where his body is located, although there are some records to suggest that he was actually disinterred and sent to Philadelphia for a reburial, and there's no sign of, of where his grave might be in Philadelphia that I've been able to discover. What information do you have about how he came to possess Osceola materials? That's part of the confusion, that we know Casey wound up with an awful lot of the artifact. They weren't immediately given to him. Casey essentially received them from a fellow officer who had received them from a fellow officer. It's kind of one of those odd things where this bequest is going from officer to officer. There's another interesting Second Seminole War story that, that comes to mind. The fourth-ranked graduate of the West Point class of 1829 was a young man named Joseph Allen Smith, and his best friend was a young lieutenant named Izzard. Uh, Izzard, of course, becomes relatively famous more for his death than for his life. Once Izzard died, Joseph Allen Smith actually changed his name to J. Allen Smith Izzard, and that is the name that he lived under for the rest of his life. He served at Fort Izzard from 1836 to 1837 before resigning his commission and becoming a, a plantation owner. It's kind of fascinating to see how close some of these individuals become to each other and how much they revere each other. And then the idea of changing your name to that of your friend who had been killed, which happened more often in the 19th century than people recognize. It's a fascinating tribute that someone would take that approach to really recognize and revere one of their best friends. You had trouble finding J. Allen Smith because of this. Absolutely right. because. West Point, all of his records there were under the previous name, but all of the, the more easily discoverable modern items were under the name J. Allen Smith Izzard. The confusion arises because the original Izzard was a member of the West Point class of 1828, so you can imagine the kind of chaos uh, that this can provoke when you're trying to deal with 19th century handwriting and... Uh, shall we say, the optional spelling rules of the day. There was another member of the class of 29 who served under somebody who got a lot of great fame in the Second Seminole War. The person he served under in the command was Francis Langhorne Dade, but not at the time of the Dade Massacre. Who was this and what did his service consist of? This is Robert Burnett. His service was uh, relatively minor. The man doesn't really have a particularly distinguished record, though he gradually rises up in rank over the course of his career. 
in large part just through uh, the natural promotions that came through the existing seniority system. Burnett was the 41st out of 42 graduates of the West Point class of 1829. He branches into the 4th Infantry Regiment as a result, which means he didn't have a whole lot of choices on what he was going to do. Burnett winds up finding himself down in Florida where he's under Dade's command, but he gets sent as a messenger right before the ill-fated movement that led to essentially the annihilation of Dade's command. So, So merely by being a convenient second lieutenant, he gets detailed to take a message essentially back to their point of origin, and as a result, he very narrowly misses being a part of the ambush of Dade's command. There's nothing particularly special about Robert Burnett's military service. He himself is one of those ciphers of the class that essentially disappears, but that's his claim to fame is essentially barely surviving by being at the right place at the right time. James Robbins pointed out that even if you were last in your class or near last, you were good considering the attrition rate a given class would have at the time. What kind of attrition rate was there in this class of 1829? Uh, This class had about the same attrition rate as other West Point classes of that era. So they started out with a little over 100 cadets that had passed the initial entrance examination. And by the end, they wound up with 42 cadets. I've been transcribing Richard Screven, the the goat of the class, the the last uh, graduate of the class. I've been transcribing his letters from 1845 and 1846 of late. Compared to a lot of his peers, he definitely does not show the intellectual capabilities of the top graduates, the way that he writes, the way that he spells, but also the things that he fixates upon are not evidence of him being even remotely as capable as his peers. Same is true of his academic track record. Uh, He was near the bottom of the class in virtually every subject. It's not like there was one particular item that was pulling him down. At West Point, at that time period, you essentially earned points towards graduation based on your standing amongst your peers in all of the different subjects. And the subjects were weighted depending on essentially how important the Corps of Engineers, which ran West Point, considered them to be. Out of the potential 2,000 points that a graduate could receive at West Point if they were number one in every subject and had no demerits to pull down their class standing, Charles Mason winds up scoring 1,997. So he was number one or tied for number one in every single subject at West Point. Previn, on the other hand, who's in last place in the class, is near the bottom of every single category. He just barely reaches the threshold where he's not dismissed from the, the academy. And it was probably because he had a relatively good disciplinary record. He wasn't spotless by any stretch of the imagination, but he hadn't angered Sylvanus Thayer and the, the professors at West Point enough that they wouldn't do their best to to drag him over the finish line if they could. But when you compare him to a Charles Mason or a Robert E. Lee or a William Harford, there's no comparison. It's very evident that he is struggling with the class load at West Point. And some of those other individuals are absolutely flourishing at the top of the group. What was the threshold that he needed to get over? theory, he needed to be over a thousand points. In practice, Sylvanus Thayer and the board of visitors who did the final examinations could essentially pass a cadet through to graduation if they were relatively close to the 1,000-point threshold, and and they did. Several of these graduates were technically below the 1,000 points that were expected. It was not a hard and fast rule, but it did show essentially a minimum competence in all of the subjects at hand. 
What did his life or his career turn out to do? Well, Screven stays in the military for his entire career, you know, which is not true of most of the, the graduates. He starts out in the 2nd Infantry Regiment. That means his first service is actually at Hancock Barracks up in Maine. Two years after graduation, he gets transferred to the Deep South. Now, he was born in South Carolina and had an appointment from South Carolina, which is where John C. Calhoun was also from. And Screven absolutely reveres Calhoun for his entire life. Um, he's almost obsessed with Calhoun and sees him as the, the greatest product of the state of South Carolina that had ever been born. After he serves at Hancock Barracks, he heads down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where he serves at Fort Jessup. And he's gonna stay in Louisiana for several years, including at Fort Wood, which is relatively close to New Orleans. In 1835, he gets pulled over to Florida, and he's going to be engaged in fighting at Camp Izzard. So he'll actually be fighting there in February and March of 1836. Going to fight at Olokulikaha in March of 1836 and he will continue to be engaged at Okeechobee in 1837 uh, before, at the end of 1837, being sent up to New York to serve on frontier duty. As part of that transfer to New York, he actually transfers to the 8th Infantry, which was a relatively common maneuver in that time period. Whenever there was a, an opening of a higher rank, you'd often have officers jockeying to transfer into a new unit at the higher rank and the, the greater opportunity. And so those that had distinguished themselves, as Screven had done, he was widely regarded as very brave and effective at his duty, that gave him opportunities to potentially jump forward a little bit faster. He'll spend a little bit of time at Jefferson Barracks in Missouri, uh, and then get sent back down to Florida. From 1840 to 1842, he's actually going to be serving in the Florida War again at the, the seat of battle, heavily involved. And then he'll spend two more years garrisoning Fort Brooke. He's at Key West. He winds up then in 1845 being sent to Corpus Christi, where he's 100% convinced there's nothing to worry about. There's no war with Mexico coming. And he spends most of his time in 1845 and early 1846 reassuring his wife that soon the two of them will be sent with their unit either back to Florida or he'll potentially transfer and try to get himself assigned to duty up in the, the New England and New York region. It doesn't happen. He actually winds up serving in the war with Mexico, including fighting at the Battle of Monterey. Um, he's involved in the siege at Veracruz, and then he's part of the, the march on Mexico City, fighting at Cerro Gordo and at Churubusco. For his efforts, even though he's a captain in the 8th Infantry, he's actually going to receive two brevet promotions for his meritorious conduct. One for the Battle of Monterey, serving under General Taylor, and one for his battle at Molino del Rey, where he's serving under General Scott. He's actually wounded and he's in fairly ill health. He's just got kind of a, a host of chronic conditions. After the Battle of Molino del Rey, he's actually going to wind up being sent on recruiting service, which was essentially a way to allow convalescent leave while still performing a valuable service to the Army. In 1850, he's not able to continue performing even the, the minimal duties associated with being part of the recruiting service, and he'll request a sick leave of absence. He dies in early 1851 in New Orleans. What does a story like his tell one about 
Previn is one of those fascinating cases where he's last in his class at West Point, which means he still has a better education than the vast majority of adults in the United States in that time period. He never seems to be able to develop any significant opportunity. Nobody wants to hire him into civilian life as an engineer. He doesn't have a lot of other useful skills. So the longer he stays in the military, the more he kind of has no other choice. The military's pay is not particularly good which means Screven is spending a lot of his time looking for alternate ways to make money. Uh, he spends several months, for example, in garrison duty at Corpus Christi, organizing a raffle where he's going to essentially sell tickets to his fellow officers or soldiers or civilians or anybody that's interested, and then draw one of the tickets to determine who's going to be the winner of his personal rifle. This is a way for him to make more money than if he just sold it for a set price. He tries to get into a whole host of land speculation deals, none of which seem to work very well. He tries to convince a friend of his from New Orleans to open up a sutler business in the garrison and potentially make profits off of that. It, it never comes to fruition. And so as a result, he spends most of his active duty time away from his wife and family. His biggest pastime, his biggest diversion is writing extremely long, very tedious letters to his wife, begging her to reciprocate with equally long letters, and she never comes close to reaching his standards. He's been writing four and five page letters on a daily basis, uh, which suggests that he's really bored to tears on his garrison duty. He's incredibly lonely, and it's, it's a rough life for him. He describes his surroundings, living in a tent in Corpus Christi for the better part of a year. It's a very Spartan lifestyle for him. The weather is catastrophic most of the time. The troops are bored and exhausted from constant drill. And the only real pastime is kind of rumor mongering of what's going to happen next. And yet he had heroism when it came time for combat. When it came time for combat, he got to do what he had been taught to do at West Point, which was command a company in Mexico. Thanks to the loss of other company commanders for a brief period as a captain, he's commanding a regiment. That's normally a position that, that was held by a lieutenant colonel in that time period. But the reality is promotions are very slow and entirely dependent upon seniority. So even though he's doing all of these heroic things and he's getting these brevet promotions, his permanent rank after a full 22 years of active duty service is still captain. And that's very normal relative to the rest of his class. Yeah, the vast majority of this class does not reach high rank, and the ones that do, for the most part, reach it in the late 1850s or during the Civil War. So an awful lot of the members of this class are going to come back into service during the Mexican War on a limited basis and during the Civil War for certain, and they're essentially going to jump over a lot of their classmates that had been in service all along. And so you can imagine the frustration associated with you putting in decades of service and then one of your classmates that's been off being a lawyer or an engineer or a teacher or a politician suddenly comes back and is your superior officer. And you can see that in some of the writings of these individuals. Some of them are incredibly frustrated, particularly when it's somebody that they performed much better than back at West Point. One of the funniest things I've come across and, and that really kind of hooked me on this entire project was looking at Charles. Charles Mason's diaries. And, and remember, this is the guy that was first in the class. He's writing a diary every day during the Civil War, and one of the things that he talks about is the performance of a lot of his classmates. Sure enough, there's a diary entry in there where his handwriting's a little shaky, 
It kind of looks like he's had a couple of glasses of brandy or, or whatever his beverage of choice was. And he makes the assertion that Robert E. Lee is certainly, apparently, doing a great job as a general in the field. Uh, but he wonders if he had stayed in uniform, if he might not have bested Robert E. Lee in combat as he had bested him at West Point. It's a ludicrous assertion. There's nothing in Mason's life to suggest that he was ever particularly inspiring as a leader. He was respected, but he didn't seem to really have a lot of close friends. He never really had an aura of command, whereas Robert E. Lee had those particular elements certainly in spades. The idea that he would have been a successful commander is a stretch. The idea that he would have been more successful than Lee is uh, absolutely crazy. Anybody else come to mind that had anything curious or distinguished about their service? I've already talked a little bit about Joseph Allen Smith Izzard, who was number four in the class. Number eight in the class was John Mackey. Um, John Mackey served in the Florida War, didn't have anything particularly exciting because he was just a lieutenant. He served from 37 to 39 in the war. What makes Mackey actually more interesting to us is that he was Robert E. Lee's lifelong best friend. So there's a lot of letters back and forth between the two of them. And Mackey himself becomes a member of the topographical engineers when that organization is founded. Uh, but he dies relatively young. He dies in 1848 at the age of 42 in Savannah, Georgia. He'd been on sick leave for several years prior to that, probably due to some chronic illnesses that he almost certainly acquired during his service in Florida. Medical technology being what it was in that time period, it's somewhat impossible to be absolutely certain of what he died of, but it looks like he probably died of tuberculosis contracted during his time in Florida. The next graduate then is John Casey, was the, the 11th uh, graduate of the class, and, and talked about how he wound up serving as the Indian agent. Joseph E. Johnston graduated 13th in the class and wound up first branching in the artillery, but then becoming a topographical engineer for his service. One of the more interesting named members of the class was John F. Kennedy, believe it or not. Uh, he graduated 14th in the class and served in Florida from 1836 to 1837. But other than that, there's very little on John F. Kennedy. He's another one of those examples of a career that's a complete cipher. Uh, he spent a little bit of time as an instructor at West Point. He spent a little bit of time at the artillery school for practice. He spent some time as an artillerist at Charleston Harbor. He got sent to Florida on ordinance and commissary duty, meaning he was a staff officer whose primary job was to make sure that the logistics aspects of things were handled. Uh, but he gets sick in Florida, and he winds up essentially taking a short sick leave and dies in Charleston at the age of 30. And once again, it's almost certainly due to a disease contracted in Florida. In his particular case, most of the signs point to malaria. Sidney Burbank graduated 17th in the class. He serves kind of frontier duty all over the place. He seems to be almost a, a well-regarded trouble fixer. As a result, the 1st Infantry Regiment takes an interest in him early on and is going to hold on to him all the way until 1856 which means he's getting the opportunities that he hoped for there. Now, he's going to wind up serving in the Old Northwest. He's going to be in Wisconsin. He's going to be at Fort Leavenworth. But he's also going to spend time in the Florida War. And the interesting thing about him is that he goes to Florida right after being the uh, instructor of infantry tactics at West Point. And so he's kind of going in the wrong direction for our purposes. I mean, it'd be great if he went from Florida to West Point and imparted some of the things that he learned from his time in Florida. Uh, as for fighting in Florida, he's involved in a skirmish at Suwanee Town in 1841, 
but for the most part he seems to be largely away from the heart of the fighting. William Hoffman graduated 18th in the class. Hoffman's more well known for his time in the West, um, in particular commanding Fort Laramie, where he's going to wind up getting involved in a whole series of skirmishes with the Sioux. He also has a very distinguished service record from his time in Mexico. But Hoffman does spend time in the Florida War, and he's actually in Florida for the better part of five years, from 1837 to 1842. And yet there's almost nothing in the Army records to suggest that, that Hoffman was doing anything of any particular note. Uh, he is a captain in the 6th Infantry, which means he has his own company. But as far as I can tell, they're primarily on garrison duty, and they're kind of bouncing around throughout the Florida Peninsula to the different posts without getting committed to any significant combat. 20th graduate of the class is Franklin Hunt. He's a kind of an Army bureaucrat more than anything else. He joins the 4th Artillery coming out of West Point, and he stays with them for most of his career until he gets the opportunity in the mid-1850s to become a major. He gets promoted from captain to major in exchange for becoming a paymaster. And it becomes his job to literally travel from post to post, providing the money associated with paying troops. So in some ways, he's the most popular guy at the post whenever he shows up, because he's actually going to pay off often months at a time for the troops. Hunt is in many ways uh, more interesting to me because he's going to be integral to founding the town that surrounds Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And he actually gets involved in quite a bit of land speculation that might or might not have been illegal. There's uh, a pretty big controversy in a significant court case where they try to determine whether Hunt had used his position in the army to essentially uh, condemn a bunch of privately owned land and then turn around and have some of his speculating friends purchase it kind of under a shell company. Um, and he winds up surviving the, the resulting court-martial. But during the Civil War, unlike most of his classmates that used their position to gain higher commands and advancement, he's perfectly content to just stay right where he is in Kansas. That's exactly what he's going to do. He doesn't seek a promotion or any, any way, shape, or form. Um, instead, he kind of wants to sit the war out and remain fairly comfortable over in Kansas. The 24th graduate of the class is Albemarle Cady. He's going to spend most of his career on the western frontier, but he does spend some time. From 1838 to 1842, he is stationed in Florida. Once again, though, he doesn't seem to be involved in any of the significant fighting. He's a company commander in the same unit that Captain William Hoffman was in, and the two of them spend most of their time in garrison. So they're kind of a force in waiting without actually making any significant contributions to the fight. He's got a distinguished service record in Mexico, which leads to brevets from his performance at Molino del Rey. Then he's going to get sent out to the far west coast. He's actually going to, for most of the Civil War, be in command of the District of Oregon, uh, which is not exactly a hotbed of fighting against the Confederacy, though there are some Native American conflicts that kind of threaten to erupt while he's there. Edwin Long is one of the lowest ranked members of the class. Um, he actually graduates in 39th position out of 42. He does serve in the Florida War. He, he doesn't achieve any high rank, certainly. He's a first lieutenant in the 2nd Infantry when he goes to Florida. He winds up getting in the midst of, of what's often referred to as the rout of Halleck Tustanuggie's band at the Big Hammock of Pilaka Likaka 
1842, but most of his time is spent in garrison. There's just nothing particularly exciting with him. And that's really fascinating, but also frustrating that, that you see these members of the class that are involved, they see what's going on in Florida, but they're not directly engaged. And yet, it's my contention that the war in Florida really changes a lot of their perspectives on how wars should be fought, how wars can be fought and the, the types of objectives that military commanders should be pursuing. And so while a lot of authors will argue that the Mexican War is the dominating influence uh, leading into the Civil War, I would say for an awful lot of military officers, the Florida Wars are equally important in terms of how not to engage in fighting. Why do you think that the Florida War, the Second Seminole War, is overlooked? <laughs> People like to triumph. They like to revel in victory. And the Seminole War is embarrassing in a lot of ways. It is a ruinously expensive, bloody, nasty fight, despite massive numerical and logistical advantages for the U.S. Army. But then it's also really embarrassing, I think, in the modern era, in terms of what the Army was being expected to do effect on the Seminole Nation of essentially forcing them to leave the only territory they had ever lived in and move to a radically different position, point of a bayonet essentially, is not something that we should necessarily be proud of. Uh, in the same way that we're not proud of the experiences of the other so-called civilized tribes forcibly removed from the Southeast and moved to the Indian Territory in what is now Oklahoma. It's a shameful episode in, in American history. And when you compound that with the incredibly high cost associated with what was effectively, in many ways, if not a losing effort, a very protracted, almost losing effort, uh, there's kind of a, an unwillingness to spend a lot of time dwelling on it. But the other problem with the Florida War, in many ways, is just the lack of the types of personal recollections and, and firsthand accounts that we would like to have. There are firsthand accounts but they're overshadowed by the, the amount of materials that we have from the Mexican War and, in particular, from the Civil War. Florida climate was not particularly hospitable for the actual preservation of written records. That contributes an awful lot. There are a lot of people that write about their experiences in Florida to their private family, but there aren't that many of them that are publishing works about it, these personal works that, that detail you know, my life in the Florida Wars, in the same way that we get a whole host of publications from Mexico and, and then especially from the Civil War. They're largely being overshadowed. Florida itself doesn't develop as a state, really, in many ways um, until the 20th century. To a certain extent, there's a lack of people that are directly involved and engaged in preserving the history at the time that it's being created. But I can't give you a full answer for why this war gets marginalized other than to say that there's an awful lot of things going on simultaneously. Times the, the, the things that get preserved are the things that were dominating coverage of newspapers in the time period, for example. So news from Mexico when the Mexican War is going on is really propagated nationwide, and that just does not seem to be as true for news from the Florida War that was only a few years before Mexico. And maybe that's because the news wasn't good and the newspapers didn't want to publish it as a result. Or maybe it was just that the American public as a whole was less interested in the fighting going on in Florida and more interested in the fighting going on with Mexico. Florida had already come under official American possession. You know, but to a certain extent, I, I think that there's a, a certain degree of embarrassment. The, the cost of the, the Second Seminole War was about four times that of the purchase price of Florida in the first place. And so the idea that you're just going to pour resources into 
this area that ostensibly is already under your control. It's incredibly frustrating. It's a very piecemeal approach to war. There's certainly a significant effect within the Army in terms of the careers that never were. While my class didn't have a lot of people that definitely resigned because of potential assignment to Florida, the Army as a whole saw about one-third of its officers resign in the period of 1835 through 1837. And those resignations were overwhelmingly at the junior ranks. So lieutenants and captains are resigning like crazy because they still have opportunities to go do other things, and they're the ones that are probably most in harm's way in terms of officership. Enlisted personnel didn't have the opportunity to resign, but they did desert, and they deserted in very high numbers. Uh, if their units were being sent to Florida, you could count on a significant hemorrhage of troops that would just quietly disappear before the unit moved out. If they actually reached Florida, the number of them that essentially disappeared, probably trying to desert and return home but, but failing to do so, uh, also a massive, significant source of losses within the units. Beside the risk to one's life from battle, most folks died from some type of climate-related affliction. It's a very difficult climate in the mid-1800s. Even with malaria, yellow fever, other chronic diseases that sweep through the area on a regular basis, tuberculosis is fairly prevalent there. It's also logistically so far from the rest of the United States in a lot of ways that it's very difficult to treat any of these conditions as they emerge, as they arrive. They never have enough medical personnel. They never have enough medical supplies. They don't have a particularly good understanding of the environment itself. I won't say it's a death sentence to be sent to Florida. It certainly wasn't. But an awful lot of the, the individuals in that time period saw it as akin to a death sentence. It had an outsized part of their imagination, and it really terrified a lot of people. The idea of going to fight this enemy that hid in the, the swamps and attacked without warning and you know then couple that with the massive casualties from chronic illnesses and Florida service really terrified people. I thought you would preface your answer by saying John C. Casey notwithstanding. <laughs> uh, Casey uh, he certainly seemed to find Florida not just for the climate but he just seemed to really like Florida and so he wasn't phased by it. Maybe it's because he was English. Uh, you know, having been born in England, you know, even the climate of Florida might have seemed like an upgrade. For his own reasons, he seemed to be happiest there. His letters to his family members show that, that he was very much comfortable there and understood his place in the world there. Uh, but for an awful lot of the, the other members of the class, Florida was not the place they wanted to be. What did you get from looking at these letters or diaries? Just depended on the individual. Writing a biography is its own special challenge because you're trying to learn what made an individual act the way they acted, how they thought about their world, and how they behaved within that world. And what I'm doing is writing a collective biography of 42 people and trying to weave them together and show how they as a group uh, really characterize the changes in the army and the changes in the society. As a result, I have been all over the country collecting diaries and letters and journals, wide variety of materials that these individuals left behind that have managed to survive until today. But sometimes it's just snippets of their life. I have a diary from William Warfield, for example. Uh, William Warfield was at the top of the class. He wasn't number one, but, but he, he did very, very well at West Point. And yet uh, Warfield winds up serving in the northwestern frontier, and he keeps a diary that only encompasses about a year of his service. 
1832 and 1833. 300 handwritten pages where he talks about the different things that he sees, and in particular, he is part of negotiating a treaty with a group of Native American tribes at Prairie du Chien in Wisconsin. And so it's a first-hand account of the interaction of Army officers and emissaries from the government with these individuals, but then, then he largely disappears and there's not much more to, to talk about when it comes to it. got other materials where an individual is kind of gone until he pops up in the, the official records of the War of the Rebellion. Or I have Albert Blanchard's Mexican War Diary. There's not that much more that Blanchard left behind, but for whatever reason, he decided to keep a diary of his time serving in Mexico. John C. Casey, the letters that I have of his, the vast majority of them are from the last five years of his life because everything else that he had written and created seems to have disappeared. So sometimes you get lucky, and the recipients of these people's letters hold on to them, which was normal in the 19th century, and then they get passed down through the family until somebody decides to donate the papers to a university or a state archive or a historical society, but, but others of them then just quietly disappear. One of the interesting cases is a guy named John P. Davis. John Davis starts out with a fairly solid career. There's nothing particularly exciting about it, but he's doing fine. He, he graduated 37th out of 42 in the class, but he's on frontier duty and he's interacting with his classmates at Fort Gibson in Oklahoma and he's at Fort Jessup in Louisiana and he's, he's serving pretty well as a quartermaster, so he's a staff officer. Then he gets involved in essentially kind of maybe theft of military materials or maybe just did a bad job of keeping track of it and he gets kicked out of the army. And when he gets kicked out of the army, he's in Oklahoma when it happens at the end of a court-martial, and he basically disappears into the Cherokee Nation. And we don't really know what he was doing in the Cherokee Nation. The Cherokee Nation does not seem to have any record of his involvement with them, uh, but we know that he lived in the Cherokee Nation for another eight years. But what he was doing, nobody knows. We can speculate that maybe he got married, or you know, maybe he was in some other way connected to the Cherokee, but we just don't know. And, and unfortunately, there's just no records that I can find I would love it if one of your podcast viewers said, hey, I have those in my basement, but it just doesn't work that way. And Mackey, anything you learned about the Florida Wars from Mackey and writing to his good friend Robert E. Lee? Mackey is kind of describing the conditions of the Florida Wars, even though he's there, but he's not as heavily involved as some. He's in Florida serving with the 2nd Artillery. He doesn't see any direct combat in his time, at least not from any of the letters that I've been able to, to gather, primarily from the Georgia Historical Society. So what he's describing instead is, hey, this isn't exactly what we expected from our time at West Point, where everybody marches in straight lines and everybody follows linear tactics. Uh, he says, you know, the, the reality of service here is markedly different. And he's getting letters back from Robert E. Lee that are describing Lee's service, which is as an engineer. So he's often with garrisons. Uh, and so what Mackey's writing about the, the Seminole Wars is this you know, just constant drain of military resources due to the environment and the inability to bring the enemy to grips. To, to get them to agree to a pitched battle and the difficulty of sending war parties out to try to track them through the, the trackless swamps. Uh, and so he's kind of expressing his frustration to his friend Robert E. Lee. Lee doesn't have anything in his experience or his background where he can offer anything other than kind of moral support. He can say, hey, I really hope you're doing well and please keep yourself safe and you know look out for yourself. But he certainly can't say, well, here's how you should do it. This is what you ought to do because Lee has no idea. Lee, Lee is no more experienced in the military than Mackey is. 
and because Lee does not have the direct experience associated with service in Florida, he just doesn't have any frame of reference that he could even provide. Things like Mackey talking about the mundane and yeah, we're not getting into combat because this is what's happening. That adds color and it adds perspective that we're lacking perhaps in the official reports. There's a lot of fascinating material there as you dig through these letters, the things that they consider important to their day-to-day -day life when they're trying to explain what they're doing. That's often the, the most fascinating material, not the tactical history, which is often much more documented. These current letters by Screven that I'm reading, they paint a very bleak picture of what it's like to be a member of the infantry at Corpus Christi, Texas in the fall of 1845. It is a bleak life indeed because he's a cap, which means relative to most of the forces there, he's probably living pretty good. He's talking about his fear of frostbite at one point, fact that they've just been ordered to issue blankets to the troops, but they don't actually have any blankets to issue. He's begging his wife to send him flannel shirts so that he might survive the, the weather. Uh, and again, he's relatively well off compared to most of the troops there. It is a fascinating picture of day-to-day -day life for these individuals thing is, like, Screven actually speaks fondly of Tampa. He and his wife both seem to actually enjoy the climate there most of the time. They spent some time at Key West, and they definitely enjoyed that, you know, and it's the life just appeals to some people and, and doesn't to others, certainly. One of Casey's letters actually talks about how the citrus trees are so prevalent. There are literally piles of oranges and limes and lemons just on the ground, and the, the troops for fun, have essentially fruit fight. They just throw rotten fruit at each other for diversion. To him, that's fun and amusing and comforting and normal, whereas to others, would have been horrifying. So sometimes I think it, it probably depends on where they're coming from. Some of the members of the West Point class that I'm studying are certainly children of privilege. Uh, any kind of frontier duty does not agree with them. And some of them come from incredible hardship. Uh, there's a number of them that are actually orphans, essentially concerned citizens of their local town, banded together to try to get them an appointment to West Point in the hopes of, of giving them some form of potential career. So I suspect the, the more rough your upbringing, the more willing you are to put up with some of the difficulties of frontier service, the, the more likely you are to actually embrace it or even see it as a step up from what you remember. P.J. Springer, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thanks for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted the Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.